0: welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. It's pretty easy to get agreement that murder is bad, at least for most definitions of murder. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series, The Ten Commandments, with this sermon entitled, Do Not Murder, which covers Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, and Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at Perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Good morning, Perimeter Church. It's uh, my blessing with my family and I to be here and to minister to you with a scripture reading, which is uh, from Exodus twenty thirteen to 17. And it reads like this. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. No mataras. No cometerás adulterio, no hurtarás, no dirás contra tu prójimo falso testimonio. No codiciarás la casa de tu prójimo, no codiciarás la mujer de tu prójimo, ni su siervo, ni su criada, ni su buey, ni su asno, ni cosa alguna de tu prójimo. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Herman. Let's
2: uh, read aloud together our prayer of illumination. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither nor the thorny cares of this life choke it, but that as seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth 30, 60, or a hundredfold as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen and amen. Many years ago when I was in college, I was participating in one of the greatest organized sports you could possibly participate in. There's the NFL, and the NBA, and college football, and college basketball, and right there on par with it, just as meaningful and significant as intramurals. (laughs) Intramurals intramurals are just, as we know, if you've played them, they matter so much to the trajectory of your life. At least I thought that, apparently, at the time as a 20-year-old. It was a part of a basketball team that uh, we were all glory Glory Days has-beens that thought we were great at basketball and that our whole mission in college was to win the intramural championship at the University of Alabama and win a (laughs) t-shirt that said champions on it that I'm sure we would have kept for the rest of our lives. It was in the midst of this very important game that we were playing in the semifinals of the tournament. It was against the football team and uh, it was a good game. We're getting to the very end of the game and we're actually getting ready to go into second overtime with these guys and only a couple of seconds left on the clock and they're inbounding from their end of the court. We know that the, all they have time for is a half court shot to try to win the game before it goes into second overtime. So we're in our huddle and all we say is don't foul. They throw it into one of their players. He runs to about half court and as he begins to shoot, he jumps into one of our guys And a ref, sweet, young, redheaded girl, (laughs) blows her whistle. There's a pause, and in my mind, I'm thinking, first of all, that's that's just a no call. Let it go. Let us go to second overtime. If you're going to blow your whistle, it's a charge. If you know basketball at all, then you know what that means. But if you call it on our guy, I'm not going to be happy. She blows her whistle. She runs over to our guy. She points to him, and she says, shooting foul, three shots, no time on the clock. Yours truly loses his mind. <laughs> now the back story on this is, I at the time was one of the student leaders of Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ there, and um, this was on a Thursday night. Our large group meetings that consisted of about 300 students. I had been on stage that night inviting them to come watch our game because we were all of the students were uh, on the basketball team were involved with Crew. And I invited them to come and watch the game. So there were probably 100 crew students there, including my future wife. And when I lost my mind, things came out of my mouth that I cannot repeat here. And I berated this poor little girl in front of all of them. And I got thrown out of the game. He stepped up the player for the other team, stepped up the free throw line, made the first free throw they win the game. After I calmed down a bit, I realized, wow. Rachel came over, to, we were dating at the time, she came over to me and she just said, with anger in her eyes, you can find a ride home. <laughs> she had driven me there. We had ridden together. That little redheaded college student girl who was probably getting paid nothing to ref games, I murdered her that night. You go, wow, Jeff, that just took a turn. <laughs> According to the scriptures, where we're headed this morning, I murdered her. You see, here's the thing. Some people throughout history have murdered with their hands. All of us, every single one of us, you and me, have murdered with our hearts. We're, we're, we're in the sixth commandment. I want you to think of it as uh, the second tablet. It's, co- it's commonly called these last, the reason I had Herman read all of the last five commandments is because this is what's commonly called the second table of the law. Or if you want to think of it as just, think of it as a second tablet as Moses held them. The first four commandments being on one, the, the last six being on the other. And the first table of the law is all about our vertical relationship with God. How are we relating to God? The second table of the law, is all about in light of who we are in our vertical relationship with God, how are we then relating with one another? And so last week, had we gone in order, uh, we would have been on honor your father and mother. That was the beginning of the vertical, uh, the horizontal orientation as to the implications of the law. This week, we're looking at do not murder. Now, it it would seem fitting, and you probably wouldn't blame me, If I just said, the sixth commandment, you'll find it in verse 13 of Exodus 20, is you shall not murder. I think we got this one okay. I think we understand it. Let's pray. You would all go, I mean, yeah, I guess it's pretty straightforward. But Jesus, as he often does, and we'll get to this in a moment, Jesus, as he often does, he takes the law for us, and he moves it beyond the behavioral side and to the heart. And that's why, based on Jesus' teaching and based on the implications of the law, not just with our behavior and how we might modify or live out the law, but what's going on in the root of our hearts, we become a people who not one of us can raise our hands and say guiltless. You know, at first glance, this command, do not murder, we would think at first glance that of all the commandments, maybe this one, of all of them, we obey the most. But after careful consideration, biblical consideration of this command, we may by the end of the sermon perhaps say, this is the one that I think I obey the least. Some over the course of time have outwardly murdered with their hands. All of us, every single one of us, we have murdered with our hearts, there's only one there's only one who could raise his hand. Whoever has, who's lived on the face of the earth can raise his hand and say guiltless. I've never murdered with my hands. I've never murdered with my heart. We'll get to him in just a few moments. We think about the table of the law. This is why Jesus summed up the law in Matthew 22. Remember the great commandment. He says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. He's summing up the first four commandments and saying that. What are the first four commandments of the 10 commandments getting at? That. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart, soul, and mind. And then he says this, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he just makes it clear. He's saying, he's wanting his audience to understand. I'm summing up the 10 commandments when I say these two great commandments. Love, your, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. Because he, then he says, on these two commandments depend all the law. And the prophets. So as we get into this uh, this second table of the law, we have to ask the question, what does the sixth commandment forbid? And uh, for the sake of time, to honor the short time that we have together this morning, I'm not, I'm not going to delve into the various implications of what the sixth commandment for, forbids in terms of the things that are hot topic, controversial, uh, debated, certainly among Uh, us and among our culture issues but I will tell you this in short on those issues in short the sixth commandment forbids four things primarily It, it forbids homicide abortion suicide and euthanasia as we begin to think about this commandment what is it saying that is involved in do not murder well it would include those four things and if you want to do a, a deeper study and dive into that, two of the books that I've recommended uh, for you all to read during this series are uh, one that's written by Alistair Begg called uh, Pathway to Freedom and another one called, uh, called the, just simply The Ten Commandments by Kevin DeYoung. Both of them in those books, they're both available in our bookstore. You can order them online as well, any Amazon, any of those places. Both of those deal in more detail with why the Sixth Commandment f- forbids those four things. But it's important to say this. None of those four, this is an important, very important caveat. None of those four things are unforgivable sins. There's only one unforgivable unfor- sin and that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, what is that? Well, that's the rejection of Christ. Not believing upon Christ is the only unfor- unforgivable sin. That's the only one that damns us to hell ultimately. So if you have committed murder with your hands, if you have had an abortion, if you know someone who has committed suicide, if you are familiar with an instance of euthanasia, those are things that are forbidden by the sixth commandment, but they are not unforgivable. God's grace permeates and there is hope and there is forgiveness. What I wanna do though, where I want us to spend our time together over the next few minutes is I wanna spend our time considering three parts of Scripture, three areas of Scripture that help us see the heart of this commandment, that help us get down to the root of why do we murder and how do we begin to deal with it? So here's where I want us to go first. I want us to consider Cain. I want us to go to the first murder in human history and consider what happened in this story. Genesis 4, 1 through 10, I won't read it, but you're familiar with the story, probably, even if you're not church or been in church or a Christian, uh, you've heard the story, or at least heard it referenced, of Cain and Abel, the first two sons of Adam and Eve and how Cain uh, killed Abel. Why? Well, they both presented sacrifices to the Lord. And we don't know why, the scripture doesn't tell us, but God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice. He was not pleased with Cain's. And so Cain killed Abel. Now let me give you a little bit more of a context, though, as to what's going on here. In the previous chapter, Genesis 3 is when Adam and Eve sinned, when they took of the fruit and they disobeyed God and they thought that they could be like God by taking of the fruit and so forth. And in the midst of that chapter, God is pronouncing a curse upon uh, the serpent upon the man, upon the woman, and upon the earth as a result of sin. Sin has to be cursed. There has to be punishment with sin. God is holy. He must be just. And in his justice, he's pronouncing a curse. And in pronouncing a curse on the serpent, there is a famous, beautiful first preaching of the gospel. The first preaching of the gospel. gospel is good news. In the midst of pronouncing a curse upon the serpent, he says to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity strife between you and her offspring, your offspring and hers. And then he makes a promise, God makes a promise. He says, you will bruise his heel, talking about the offspring of Eve, you'll bruise his heel, you will think you've done great damage to him. But ultimately, he will crush your head. It's a a foreshadowing of that there's one coming from the seed, from the offspring of Eve, who's gonna crush the head of the serpent. Now what Eve and Adam didn't know it's when that would happen. So if you look at the beginning of chapter four of, of Genesis, it says this in the first verse. It says, now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And watch what she says here, she, it says, she said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, the subtext to that, the way that reads in the original language is that she's ecstatic, not just because she's had a son, but because she believes that the son she's just given birth to is this promised offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. She didn't know the timing of the Lord. She didn't know it would be uh, thousands upon thousands of years later before her offspring would be the Messiah. She thinks I've given birth to this son, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent who just got us kicked out of the garden. So he's going to crush his serpent. We're going to get to go back into the garden now. She's delighted. And what she doesn't know is this. She hasn't given birth to a Messiah. She's given birth to a murderer. And what's at the heart of Cain? This murderer, the first murderer in human history. What's, What's going on at the heart, not just at the action level? But at the heart, it's, it's right there. It's right there in the text. What, what drove Cain to murder Abel? Verse four and five. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Now watch this. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. I have found Jen Wilkin to be very, very insightful and helpful in our study of the Ten Commandments in her book, 10 Words to Live By. She says this. She says the last six commandments will press us to evaluate how we respond to the image of God as represented in our fellow man. Now listen to this. They will warn us that all mistreatment of our image-bearing neighbor springs from an underlying desire to denigrate God himself. Don't miss that. I think she's spot on when she says that. I'm gonna read that part again. This, uh, they will warn us that all mistreatment of our image-bearing neighbor springs from an underlying desire to den- denigrate God himself. Conversely, they will also exhort us that love of our image-bearing neighbor must spring from love of God. Here's the point. We're told in Genesis 4 that Cain killed Abel. We're also told that he did it out of of anger. That anger was the root of murder and remains such to this day. But I don't want you to miss that his anger was foundationally, fundamentally at God. Yes, it was at Abel, but it was primarily at God. Do you remember when David killed, when he murdered Uriah the Hittite? And when he finally saw his sin and he confessed it in Psalm 51, do you remember what he said? He said, against you and you alone, O God, have I sinned. He recognized that what I did to this man in murdering him, yes, it was sin, it was sin against him. Yes, it was, it was an offense to him, at him. But fundamentally, foundationally, it was against God. We have to be, here's the first application if you wanna think about where is this going with this whole Cain thing. Uh, we have to be purveyors of our own hearts. We have to mine the depths of our own hearts to see how our denigration, even mentally and emotionally, our denigration of others is rooted in anger. And that anger, if we dig deep enough, is mostly aimed at God that things aren't as they should be, that this person isn't who I want them to be, and why can't you change them, God? Why can't they be easier to get along with? Why are terrorist groups even a thing? God, can't you change this? Don't you want this to be different? We vilify and denigrate others, but at the core of it, is anger towards God. And watch what anger does to Cain. Not only does it lead to murder, but even after the murder, it leads to defiance. Because remember God asking the question, what have you done? And what's his response? Am I my brother's keeper? I'm not in charge of Abel, you are. That's on you, God. So who is Cain? Cain is, don't miss this, Cain is the elder brother who kills his younger brother and denounces that he's his keeper. And all of that is rooted in anger toward God. He's the elder brother who kills his younger brother, denounces that he's his keeper, and it's all rooted in anger toward God. What is a keeper? That word in the, in the Hebrew just simply means to guard, to protect, to save. To save life. To give life. He says, that's not who I am. Cain says, I'm not a keeper of him. It's all rooted in anger toward God. So secondly then, if we're gonna consider Cain, we have to consider Christ. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount does a masterful job, as Jesus does, of taking the law and exposing us for who we are at the heart level, not just our actions. Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were so good, so good at convincing themselves that they had kept every jot and tittle of the law because they're only looking at things that are manageable from a behavioralistic standpoint. They're they're not looking um, They're not looking at the letter of law, or they're only looking at the letter of law. They're not looking at the spirit of the law. They're not looking at the heart of the law. What is God really chasing after by giving us the law? We've talked about in this series. I won't belabor it now, but go back and listen. A few of our first sermons in this series are talking about what is the law? What is the purpose? And very briefly, it's simply this, to show us the standard of God, the heart of God, the holiness of God, uh, the greatness of God, and then to show us our sin, to actually crush us. So that we would see, I can't do this. I, 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 can't, I can't obey these 10 commandments. At every turn and in every way, every single commandment, I'm guilty. I need a savior. Jesus is pressing the heart of the law in when he says this, speaking of the sixth commandment. He's saying to a primarily Jewish audience who's believing they're keeping the commands, says this. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. I want you to notice the progression that Jesus walks through. And basically, in a nutshell, this is the progression. He moves from anger to contempt If you're angry with your brother, with your neighbor, with your sister, with image bearers, if you're angry with another person, then you're liable to judgment. And what he's talking about there is he's talking about unrighteous anger, sinful anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger. I'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. But it's it's anger, but then it moves quickly to, he says, and then if you insult, and that word insult there, is, is the uh, Greek word uh, raka? And that word, it, it, it is this powerful, strong word that just simply gets it great contempt for someone else, such that we judge their character. We question their character. It's not just I'm angry with you, it's I'm questioning if you are a person that I should even consider of good character. But then it quickly moves to you fool. Which is another way of saying, not only am I questioning your character, I'm questioning your worth. It all, remember, what's the root? The root is anger. What was the root for Cain? It was anger. What does anger do? Anger gives birth to contempt. What does contempt do? Contempt gives birth to death. If not with hands, with heart, that I would rather you be dead. I don't think you are worth being alive. That's this type of anger. And as I was studying this, I began to think about the number of people over the course of my life that I've done that with. And it's, it's actually way worse than what I did with that referee that, that day on the basketball court. Because I didn't know her, and I, I did, by the way, go find her the next day and apologize, just in case you were wondering. But people I know Brothers and sisters in Christ, that I have questioned their character and their worth. Dallas Willard says this, we can be angry at someone without denying their worth, but contempt makes it easier for us to hurt them or see them further degraded. The intent and effect of contempt is always to exclude someone, push them away, leave them isolated essentially kill them in our minds. How did we end up where we are today? How did we end up where civilians are being bombed to death and slaughtered in Israel? Where homicides are rising per capita in Atlanta? Over the last four years, significant increase. Where suicides are at an all time high among teenagers and young adults, where abortions continue to happen daily by the thousands despite any legal measures, where mass shootings plague our nation, not too unlike the plagues of ancient Egypt, even. How did we end up here? Jesus tells us plainly it's anger. It's, it's honestly, I think, in, just in my 20-plus years of pastoring, I, I think it's one of the most undealt-with sins in the church, anger. If murder is at its root anger, then no one among us is guiltless. We are all Cain, which is why we all desperately desperately need Christ. We're all Cain's desperately needing Christ. And who is Jesus? Remember we asked the question a moment ago, who is Cain? If Cain is the older brother who killed his younger brother and denounced that he was his keeper all out of an anger towards God, listen to who Jesus is. It's so beautiful. He's the older brother who saves his younger brothers and sisters. And demonstrates that he is their keeper, all out of a love for God. He's the complete and total opposite of Cain. And how? How how does he save the older brother who saves? his younger brothers and sisters, and he demonstrates, I am their keeper. I am their protector. I am the one who gives them life. How did did he give us life? Catch the beautiful redemptive irony. By being murdered. By being murdered at the hands of angry canes like you and me. And in that murder, he gives us life. We have to consider the church, lastly. We ask the question, who is Cain? We ask the question, who is Christ? We have to ask the question, who are we? And we'll, start, we'll start with the, the, uh, the unpretty picture of who we are. In David Powelson's book, Good and Angry, he has a chapter, and the title of the chapter is this, Do You Have a Serious Problem with Anger? It's the title of the, of the chapter. Here's the content of the chapter, the whole entire chapter. Yes. That's it. That's all it is. You open, you get to that chapter. Do you have a serious problem with anger? Yes. Turn the page next chapter. You and I have an anger problem. We have to own it, which means, according to Jesus' teaching, we also have a murder problem. As I said a moment ago, anger is not a sin. Jesus was angry in the temple. There is such a thing as righteous anger, and we should have righteous anger over things that are happening in this world. Many of the things that are happening right now, yes, righteous anger, we do not want things to be the way that they are in so many ways, and there is righteous anger in that. I I want to say this though. Far too often, far too often, I've watched this be true. You've heard me say this, if you've been around. Far too often, especially in these last few years with all that we've been walking through and dealing with, what many in the church justify as righteous anger simply isn't. It's just plain old ugly anger. And it in no way endears us to one another and it certainly doesn't endear those who don't know Jesus to him. Righteous anger purifies and, lead, purifies and leads to life. Unrighteous anger destroys and leads to death. Just this week, just this week Sam Albury, a fellow minister of the gospel, uh, he tweeted out this. I don't know if you call it that anymore. X, Twitter, whatever it's called. He said this. It's time to delete this account and leave X, Twitter. The relentless, the relentless ugliness is not worth it. We, know, we all know it can be toxic here. But it has been the conduct, the conduct of Christian leaders that has most grieved me. Slander works, and I just don't have the will to deal with it anymore. Who is Sam Alberry? Sam is a faithful follower of Jesus. In recent years, he's been outspoken about his lifelong struggle with same-sex attraction. He's also been even more outspoken, beautifully so, about the sufficiency of Christ and his commitment to celibacy. He has time and time and time again shared his story as a pastor in God's church to say over and over again, I will gladly choose obedience to God and celibacy than obedience to my flesh and sin." And I've prayed and asked God to take these desires away from me. And for whatever reason, they're not going away. And as long as they're there, I will crucify them. For I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I I don't know personally if I've come across anyone in recent years that more beautifully demonstrates the greatness, the goodness, the sufficiency, the satisfying nature of Jesus in the midst of the human struggle against sin. This brother has glorified Christ. But what has he gotten on Twitter? He's gotten other Christians constantly berating him, angry with him, to the point to where he finally said this week, I'm out. Can't do it anymore. It doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to be that way. In fact, as Christians, who are we? We, we're We're little Christs, meaning Jesus lives in us. The verse I just said, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live the life I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's him living through me. And what grieves me the most about the church right now is that that's who we are. But so often we don't demonstrate that. Jesus is not what's coming out of us. Anger is what's coming out of us. And we're destroying ourselves and we're destroying our witness because of it. And the God of the universe is looking at us and he's saying, look, go back to the Sixth Commandment. You don't don't have just an anger problem, you have a murder problem. You're killing each other. Because what is the Sixth Commandment ultimately about? The Sixth Commandment isn't just about avoiding murder. It's not just about avoiding something, it's about being something entirely different. And if we only had the law, if we only had the sixth commandment, there would be no power to do what God has called us to do, but we don't. We don't have to worry about that. Why? Because we have the Son of God, the Holy Spirit coursing through our veins that we can actually be those who obey the commandment. We can live out the truth of the sixth commandment and we don't have to be those who just avoid murder. We can be something entirely different. And what is that? Those who give life. Give life to one another. We, we give life. We exude life. We protect life. So yes, yes, we avoid murder. But as people filled with Jesus, we become life givers. And that starts with you and me. We give life to one another. We speak life to one another to the glory of God. I'll quote Jen Wilkin again, she says this. Let us read in the Sixth Commandment's prohibition of murder an exhortation to take every care to preserve life. Let us run to life protectors and esteem givers and peacemakers. To do so will require that we take stock of how we might be participating in the anger worship of our cultural moment. It will require that we strive to preserve life in a culture that believes entire categories of image bearers are worthy of our contempt or our disregard. The unborn, the elderly, the physically or mentally challenged, the poor, the powerless, the foreigner. As it is with the commandments, if we're allowing the spirit to do his great work within us, The commandments lead us to confess. They pierce our hearts and they expose us for who we are. And they produce within us a deeper desire for Jesus to become more in us. That we would be more like him. So, let's confess. Let's read aloud together this confession of sin. Father, we confess that our hearts are often full of anger. Sometimes that anger is directed at people we love the most. Sometimes it's directed at those we don't know at all. Time and time again we have found you to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yet time and time again we are quick to anger and lacking in steadfast love. Forgive us, O God. We marvel at your grace towards us that you having every right to pour out wrath and anger upon us, have poured out grace upon grace. Deserving death, you have granted us life abundant and life eternal in your Son. Praise be to God, amen. Would you take a moment, and however the Lord is leading you, just even now in the silence, would you confess your sin to the Lord? Believer in Jesus, Lift your head in assurance, for you are forgiven. Not based on your merit or your ability to to keep the commandments, but based on Jesus, who has kept them perfectly for you, was murdered for you, and rose to newness of life for you. He is our hope. He is our salvation. He is our life. And in him, by his mercy and by his grace,
0: we are forgiven.